Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter him in a diverse community and participate with him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks, Logan and Dion, for that. That was beautiful. Um, third week of Advent. Glad we can be here together um, celebrating with one another. Um, and uh, for those who are online, too, I can't see you, but uh, if you're there, welcome. Glad you're with us. Um, I grew up in a church tradition that recognized and celebrated Advent, but like only kind of, not to the extent that Awaken does or the liturgical calendar emphasizes. Um, So we would have moments in the services leading up to Christmas where like, I think it was like two kids would walk up on stage and they'd light the candle and there'd be a little reading. um, And that was about it. So for me this year and being a part of Awaken, and Advent has actually been a truly remarkable experience. And as I sat listening to Nikayla's talk a couple weeks ago, and then last week watching the kids' production, uh, I found myself having that moment of wonder. Um, that moment when something hits you afresh for the first time in a long time, um, Advent has spoken to me. And in the, the anticipation of Jesus' arrival has had a fresh impact on my life. So I'm grateful to be a part of it with you all. I'm grateful to be able to share with you today. Um, Beyond the little bit of Advent celebrated in my upbringing at church, the Lowen family had its own traditions uh, for Christmas. For example, every Christmas day before we would open presents or do anything for that matter, we would read the birth of Jesus in Luke. My dad would usually ask if somebody wanted to read it, but chances are nobody wanted to, so he would do it. And then as soon as he would, was done, the anarchy would ensue of like me and my brother just going crazy, mostly me. You think I'm a calm person? Yeah, not when there's Christmas presents in front of me. I'm sure like many of your children. Anyway, I remember doing this every year, and I'd sit listening to the words of Luke, and I would think to myself how cool it was that we were celebrating Jesus' birth. But I failed to go much deeper than that. Truthfully, like many, I was just eager to open presents and get on with the day. I never contemplated what Jesus, the Son of God on earth, meant beyond the typical ideas that many of us heard growing up. I never thought about the material impact that this held for the lives of people both back then and now. Because the weeks leading up to Jesus' birth are not merely about the birth of a baby. We're encountering Jesus, the Son of God, becoming flesh and entering the muck and the mire of life with us. These weeks are the pronouncement of an end to suffering, of an end to injustice, and an invitation to joy. But for this joy to even be a possibility, the suffering and the injustice has to reveal its finitude. Part of the theme for this week of Advent is building a home for all. As I reflected on this theme throughout the week, I wondered, what does it mean to build a home for all? How does Jesus' arrival impact that? It could be a physical building where people are safe and sheltered from the cold, dark winter of Calgary. It could be, as I imagine, many think, uh, a welcome invitation into the church building, which isn't wrong per se, but it means all that and yet so much more. My guiding question this week was, how are we cultivating a place where all are not only welcomed, but the injustices we face are rebuked? 
a place where the deepest longings of our collective hearts are met with the fullness of hope and of joy. It seems like, as we'll see in our passages today, that Jesus' arrival meant belonging was readily available to everyone. That the things that prevented belonging would lose their power. And I don't need to take a survey to know that all of us at some point or another have felt as though we don't belong anywhere, that we don't have a home in some sense of the word. I'm not merely talking about a physical house, but the variety of ways in which we can feel foreign to everything around us, or maybe even ourselves. The dominant cultural narrative tells us who we are and who we ought to be in order to be welcomed in. And often this leaves us feeling trapped and like the hill to any sense of normalcy and belonging is the height of Everest. I took a philosophy class this semester and as my final paper, I was writing on the degree to which people need free will to have a good life. A nice light topic to end my semester. To what extent are our actions our own or are they predetermined? And so I burdened Nikayla with my ponderings about this and said, what do you think? And she was talking about how we are shaped by our communities, for better or for worse. All that we do, all of our actions, are because we desire a sense of belonging. We do our best to fit in because if we just act and look like those within the group, maybe we'll be accepted too. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that it feels like you're betraying yourself when you do so. But what choice do you have? When I was growing up, I felt this immense pressure to be like my dad. He's an engineer, and my dad was always very intelligent. Um, he never put it on me to be like him, but I always thought that I had to in order to do well in life. But as I grew up, the more I realized I was not like my dad. If I had to do engineering the rest of my life, I would be miserable. Yet, because I had grown up thinking that that's what normal was, I kept trying to be like him instinctually. And the more I did this in my adult life, the less and less I felt like myself. Or maybe something we've all felt is that we don't fit into the mold of church-going Christians. We feel like strangers in a building that's supposed to be a home for all people. And so we either suffer through it, feeling like we just have to stick it out, or we abandon it altogether and feel like there's no place where we can truly belong. It says in Willie Jennings' book, After Whiteness, that theological education has always been about formation. First of people, then of communities, then of the world. If we want to continue to promote whiteness and its related ideas of masculinity and individualism in our educational work, it will remain diseased and thwart our efforts to heal the church and the world. But if theological education aims to form people who can gather others together through border-crossing pluralism and God-drenched communion, we can begin to cultivate the radical belonging that is at the heart of God's transformative work. Border-crossing pluralism and God-drenched communion. That's where this third week of Advent takes us. Our texts for today are Zephaniah 3, verse 14 to 20, as was read earlier, and Luke 3, verse 1 to 18. And in these two passages, we explore the radical shift that God introduces into this world. For the Jewish people who were awaiting their Messiah, he was thought to be one who would come as king and conqueror. The religious leaders would benefit exceptionally from this on top of their already powerful place in society. Their place would be secured, but those who were not so strong and powerful, 
but rather lowly and weak, would merely fall deeper into the valley, falling unnoticed. We'll take a look at these in a moment, but I think understanding the context in Zephaniah immediately prior to this passage is key to understanding what we're talking about today. Chapter 3 begins describing how awful the city of Jerusalem has become and how wicked its people are. Um, it should be on, perfect. It's already on the screen. 3 verse 1 to 5 reads, Ah, soiled, defiled, oppressing city. It has listened to no voice. It has accepted no correction. It is not trusted in the Lord. It is not drawn near to its God. The officials within it are roaring lions. Its judges are evening wolves that leave nothing until the morning. Its prophets are reckless, faithless persons. Its priests have profaned what is sacred. They have done violence to the law. The Lord within it is righteous. He does no wrong. Every morning he renders his judgment, each dawn without fail. But the unjust knows no shame. As the beginning of Luke 3 indicates, with its acknowledgement of the rulers of the empire at the time of Jesus' birth, his introduction into the world is during a dark time, much like how Zephaniah describes. The rulers and the leaders of the day are living their best life as they profit from the poor who only become poorer. And that gap between the high and the low is increasingly more destructive and dehumanizing. Salvation to them seems like a distant reality. But in comes John the Baptist, perhaps one of the stranger characters in the Bible with his odd outfits and rather gross-sounding eating habits. And John proclaims this prophecy regarding the Messiah, as mentioned in Isaiah. There should be a slide. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The words of Isaiah make no mention of increasing the distance between the poor and the wealthy. In fact, they say the opposite. Mountains and hills shall be made low, rough ways will be made smooth. A shift is happening. And the story continues in verse 7. So John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As the reading for this week of Advent says, Though his words might sound harsh, you brood of vipers, John's message is one of good news, of change, forgiveness, and justice to a suffering people. God called John for a specific place and time, and his cry from the wilderness, as written in Isaiah, proclaimed leveled valleys and righted wrongs. This was and is a message of joy especially for those who had lost hope, hurt by the iniquities and injustices perpetrated by the empire and the religious authorities aligned with it. The world as they knew it was about to change. Notice how the crowds are identified in this story. They're kind of just a group of people, but based on John's rebuke, we can guess that they are Jewish, probably including some religious leaders. 
for he tells them not to claim their salvation based on a genealogy that goes back to Abraham. They were thinking that because their connection, uh, they had a connection with Abraham, they had salvation secured. If the Messiah is truly here or is coming, these are the people who should be celebrating. This baptism of repentance John speaks of could only be for those who are not Jewish. It makes me think of the various ways that we justify our own injustice or ignorance. We think that because we're Christians, we're okay. We've been saved by Jesus, and that warrants maybe some of our own haughty behavior. I know I have been like that. We give our 10% to the church and maybe more to another organization. We volunteer in this ministry, in that place. I don't think John's calling out those people who aren't doing such things. He's calling out the people who take their position and use it selfishly. Those who are creating and sustaining systems of injustice, oppression, and separation. John is preparing the way of Jesus who is going to counter all of this and make a place for everyone. The hill shall be made low. The rulers, the powerful figures, will be brought down. They will be humbled and shall be at the height as those in the valley who they thought were inferior. All flesh will see the salvation of God. Not just those who are Jewish, who belong to the covenantal family of God, those who are religious leaders or give lots of money or those who have been around longer. All flesh. All people. One of my favorite videos from the Bible Project is where they're explaining the concept of justice. See, it's about making everything and everyone even. The video shows people on very high pedestals and some people on very low pedestals. And justice is what brings the high down and lifts the lowly up to the same place. That movement is what Jesus embodies in this world. That's the movement John is proclaiming to the crowds. It's this vertical movement that Advent speaks to. Walter Brueggemann um, has a video where he talks about what it means to inhabit this justice, about what it means to be the home for all people. So we're going to watch it together. It's about five minutes, um, and then we'll come back together after that. Well, Seis uh, uh, Shalom is uh, to be communally in sync uh, with the purposes of God. And uh, the purposes of God are uh, justice for everybody in the neighborhood. Uh, so I think uh, when you pose uh, the question about the neighborhood, it turns out that justice and shalom are very nearly synonyms uh, in which um, uh, everybody commits their resources and their energy and their imagination to the common good. And uh, when we do that, we'll be, uh, we'll be on the way to shalom. I think uh, we ought to permit everybody to work at the common good uh, the way they can do it without anybody imagining that we have the one way to do it. I have a very uh, conservative friend uh, 
whom I love, but he sees communism everywhere, and so he wants to celebrate the private sector. Well, I say to him, well, you just work on Shalom in the neighborhood through the private sector, and that is fine with me. Uh, I, I think uh, when we become ideologically convinced that the way I want to do it is the only way we can do it, then we get into these impossible situations. And I, I just think we need, to, we need to make a lot of room for each other about doing that. I think that uh, salvation, to the extent that it is this worldly, uh, it has everything to do with salvation. And uh, if salvation in some way is more than this worldly, uh, simply it's then simply a dreaming extension of the same thing beyond our present life, whatever that means. So I think uh, certainly in the Old Testament, you have to start with uh, this worldly communal well-being and uh, then I think in the imagination of Jesus and the church, uh, we imagine well-being beyond this world. But uh, if you start the other way, then you uh, diminish the materiality of salvation and it turns into a kind of a, a spacey, spooky business, I think. It depends on it depends on what formula uh, one uses to try to talk about what happened on the cross. If you if you go the way of the priestly metaphor that Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice, which is not the way I would say it, uh, then um, the Father is satisfied and can welcome us all home. If you say, as I'm more inclined to say, that uh, Jesus defeated the powers of evil, uh, then the next world is a zone of, of wonderful freedom for all of us without the power of death haunting us. So I think how you answer that depends on what theory or what formula you use to try to talk about that. Friday happening, whatever it was. Calvin has a has a, a wonderful paragraph uh, in in which he says that the that the the gospel is the perfect response to worldly malady, and uh, if it's sin, then it's forgiveness. If it's slavery, then it's emancipation. If it's loneliness, then it's companionship. So you have to match those up, and. Uh, and, and no single one will catch all of that, I think. Sometimes, sometimes, because <laughs> what God wants uh, is for us to come home. And the parable says that happens sometimes.
it's only from this place of making things right that joy can become a reality in the lives of the people. For without the radical shifting of the lay of the land, the life of the oppressed will not change. This is where Zephaniah's poem of joy, as read earlier, enters the story. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you home, at the time when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. I talked with Adam this week about this Advent sermon, and he shared um, some of the following thoughts with me. Adam said that in Zephaniah, the sin of Jerusalem is not trusting God. As a result, God is going to punish everyone and then bring them into a place where the proud are brought low. They will no longer be haughty, as it says in verse 11. God is going to bring justice by establishing humility and bring the high and the lofty down. Out of this movement of justice comes the song of joy. The king is in your midst, and you shall fear no more. I will change your shame into praise. In relation to John, for joy to become a reality, the hills need to be brought low. Those who abuse authority need to be stopped, and if it doesn't happen, then what do we have to celebrate? Oppression and fear need to be lifted. There needs to be condemnation of injustice falling under the banner of joy. Excuses need to come to an end. Justice needs to be the precursor to joy. God's purpose is to create a place where everyone can sit at the table and feel that sense of joy. For some, that means humility, and for others, it means being lifted up. Those who have been downtrodden or broken, whether that's because of where they are or those who have put their trust in God, the reality is all are redeemable. Nothing is beyond redemption. Trusting in the God who wants to draw near, the God who became flesh and dwelt among us, that's what we need. And we will not be put to shame. Even in the depths and mourning and painful self-discovery, we know that nothing is beyond redemption. Imagine if that understanding and belief came with some level of consistency. How would that change you? These passages reveal that God is not blind to the injustice and the crookedness of this world. There is action, and it starts, strangely, with God choosing to enter into the broken places in his life with the people, and then both in the journey to the cross and the cross itself. Earlier this week, Tat and I sat with some of our friends, and we talked about how each of us was 
doing in this Advent season. And one of them expressed how grateful they were that after a very difficult season, they were beginning to feel a sense of joy and hope, despite having been surrounded by death and suffering for several months. They're tired and they long to feel this sense of joy. It was merely hours later that they received even more heartbreaking news. We sat there with them thinking, how does joy fit into our stories when it seems so oppositional to the suffering and injustice that overwhelms us? Some of us have found ourselves in places of complete bewilderment about God and his goodness. Your faith has crumbled and the good times are all but a distant memory. You plead for things to change, but it all seems to stay the same. We don't find a solution just through pure willpower. Many of us have tried that. John's call is one of radical social change. He continues in the Luke passage, we didn't read it, but he he goes on to call out the soldiers and the tax collectors by name, urging them to take only what they deserve and give the rest away. He encourages all people um, who have two cloaks to give one to somebody else in need. Notice how John's exhortation completely evens the playing field. Those who have none gain one, and those who have two end up with one. Suddenly, everybody has just enough clothing. Everybody has the same. He's begging the people to ruthlessly eliminate that which separates people and divides them into groups of superior and inferior, those who belong and those who are outsiders. The kingdom of God is radically welcoming. The table of God is large and open to all. The answer, to, to, the answer is communal, and we find joy in that place of radical belonging. Fleming Rutledge said this about John the Baptist. The premier personage of Advent is John the Baptist. When he appears on the banks of the Jordan, the cover-ups come to their appointed end. 2,000 years before all the water gates, Iran gates, and other sordid gates, John came proclaiming God's imminent judgment on the venality of governments, the corruption of police departments, the greed of financiers, the selfishness of the rich, the self-righteousness of the religious establishment. In the end, he became one of the disappeared himself, executed without a trial in the dank dungeon of the local strongman, thus becoming truly the precursor of the one whose way he prepared, the one whose death at the hands of the political and religious ruling classes signified the final judgment of God on all the powers and principalities. I talked at the beginning uh, today about this home for all and what that means. This home is not merely a building as we established that we're trying to squeeze everybody into, which thank goodness, because this building is not huge. It's a collective belonging, a communal space where all are free to be. The community where rough ways that inhibit access to the space are made smooth where justice is upheld and wrongs are made right. Maybe we stop setting up or upholding boundaries that define who is allowed in. Maybe instead of only inviting people in, we go to where they are. Part of this is recognizing where others are upholding corrupt ways. But I think the far more difficult responsibility is to ask how we are contributing in the ways that sustain the distance that makes it feel safe at the top clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, giving voice to the silenced and oppressed, 
speaking truth to power and protecting and empowering the vulnerable. Maybe, just maybe, when we do that, we will find this home that Jesus is building. Maybe when we try to make space for belonging, we'll be doing as John encouraged those people to do. That home is one that is filled with a sense of joy. Sing and dance and shout because God is bringing us home. Our shame turns into praise. The Advent reading for this week says, collective belonging gives way for collective joy. We can't be celebrating the arrival of Jesus without being a place where all people can belong. Radical belonging. That's what Jesus introduces into this world. And that's what we are to be about. As the closing part of today's sermon, um, Eric is going to read us a poem. Um, the words will be up there, but I just invite you to listen very carefully and reflect um, as he reads this. So Eric, if you want to come. Advocating for Home by Reverend Sarah Speed. Uh, written for all who don't feel at home, especially for those who identify as transgender and or non-binary. I know you don't feel at home in your body. Your clothes don't feel right. Your bones don't feel right. Your name, just a word that people have labeled you with. I see the way you try on pronouns like I try on clothes. Looking for something, anything that feels right. And what I would give to build you a shelter, a safe space where you could be, a home where you were safe and free. What I would give to carve out some room for you to process and to grieve and dance and sing your way into your true self. But I know it's not that easy. My hands cannot build you safety. My words cannot give you time. My heart cannot be home enough. So until the day when you are truly at home, I will keep marching for you. I will keep advocating for the home you deserve, the home in your own skin. And I will keep praying and I will give you my second coat and the shirt off my back and the food from my table and I won't keep give up on preparing the way. A voice is calling out in the wilderness. Do you hear it? There's more for us here than has been before. <laughs>